Support for this podcast and the following message come from the University of Alabama. Through Bama by Distance, you can earn a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree with online coursework and affordable tuition. Learn more or apply today at bamabydistance.ua.edu. Welcome to the Small Batch Edition of Pop Culture Happy Hour. I'm Linda Holmes. I'm the editor of NPR's pop culture and entertainment blog, Monkey See. And I'm here in the studio with one of our favorite people, Ari Shapiro. Hi, Linda. Hi, Ari. Ari is the host, as if you don't know, of All Things Considered, one of our hosts. Ari is here with me in the studio because we are bringing you an extended version of a conversation that Ari recently had. Now, Ari, who is this conversation with? This conversation is with the Duffer Brothers as they are billed in the opening credits to their show, Stranger Things. Stranger Things. The Duffer Brothers are twins, Matt and Ross Duffer. They were born in 1984. Anyone who has watched Stranger Things will know it is set in 1983. And it is very emphatically 1980s in tone, style, substance, decor, all of the above. Right. This is a Netflix series. It's kind of... Horror, Spielberg, mashup. Yeah, Stephen King, Steven Spielberg, John Carpenter. Yeah. And they were obviously devotees of these films, and the show pays tribute to them somehow without just coming across as pastiche. Right. And as you probably know, uh, if you listen to our show, Ari mentioned this uh, in his What's Making Me Happy this week on a regular episode of our podcast. And it made me very happy to talk right. to these two brothers who... Clearly, as first-time TV show creators who were rejected by about 15 different networks before Netflix picked them up, they've now become the hit of the summer, and I think they find it pretty surreal, as you'll hear. Yeah, and we should also mention uh, they are uh, twins. They sound exactly alike, essentially. Uh, <laughs> they don't identify they themselves, don't identify themselves on, tape. on tape. You should not expect to be able to tell which one is talking. Think of them as a joint unit. Uh, and other than that, just uh, away we go. Let's hear this conversation. Now, Stranger Things is the first big show that you two have been in charge of. So what was your elevator pitch? I think it was around 30 different movies. A lot of them were from the 80s, but not entirely from the 80s. Movies that we, we cut together to kind of tell the story of the show. But it was cool because then we, you know, we had, you know, a lot of shots from E.T., but we scored it with, like, John Carpenter synth music. So I think it helped us figure out what the show was going to feel like, and I think it helped... Netflix and other companies and producers understand what we wanted to do with the show. To us, actually, this stuff, it didn't feel like this hodgepodge. It all felt like a whole when we all put it together and we put the music over. And I think the reason is that all those, you know, the Stephen King stuff, the John Carpenter stuff, the Spielberg stuff, is all just about these small towns and these very ordinary people. We put it together and the music gave it this sort of slightly... Um, edgier tone than the John Williams music. It sort of tied all these these ideas together and we realized that uh, that was a relief to us because we realized that this thing might work. You were both born in 1984, so you didn't even live through this time firsthand. The show is set in 1983. Were you relying on the props master and others who were perhaps a generation above you? Of course. Uh, yeah, you know, well, but no, Chris, our production designers, are the same age. Yeah, same so, I mean, a lot of it is, you know, it's so weird because our childhoods... I mean, some of this is very personal to us in that, you know, we had our group of nerdy friends. I mean, we weren't, we weren't playing much Dungeons and Dragons. We were mostly playing uh, Magic the Gathering, but very similar. And we felt like we were going, we would go out in the woods and you felt like you were on these adventures. So that was all very much, we're just ripping from our childhood there. But then also another major part of our childhood were these were these movies and these books. And, you know, we would just devour them and you'd watch them, 
you know, 10, 20 times. You know, when you're a kid, you can just watch these movies over and over again. And so I think it sort of became embedded in our DNA a little bit. Yeah, I think so. But I, then also, like, I, like when you watched all these 80s movies, they, nothing about those felt dated at all to no. me. I mean, they, they, they felt very current when I was watching them. We just ha- didn't happen to experience them theatrically. We're movie people. Like, I, I actually don't mind that it's... Uh, that people are actually not experiencing it in, in, in the movie theater just because the, the movies that, that we're referencing and the, and the feeling we're trying to recapture, we experienced all of that, on all of those on VHS. But none of it felt, like again, I, even when I watch E.T. now, it doesn't feel like some, it doesn't feel like a period piece to me. And I think the great thing about, you know, our production designer and, you know, our prime masters, we were just trying to find people that wanted to achieve the same feeling that we did. And the minute, like, Chris Churio sent in, you know, his lookbook for us, he, like us, hadn't done television before. And again, Netflix let us sort of take a chance on this guy. And I think in the reason, you know, we loved what he sent is that it just, to us, it just there's felt something very real and something very tangible about the worlds that, that he wanted to create. It had more to do with the colors and the aesthetic. And it's less about, you know, Cabbage Patch Kids and more about the wood panel walls. Yeah, I love the wood panel walls. Yeah, he loves the wood yeah. panel walls. And so that stuff, that's the stuff that instantly brings me back. Or even the little thing, like the rainbow blinds in Mike's room, just something very simple like that, that when I see that, I instantly feel like I'm sort of transported back in time. Winona Ryder has gotten so much attention for this role, not only because she's great in the role, but also because she had arguably her most famous run of films in the 1980s. And now she comes back playing a role that seems like it could be a descendant of those or or a parent of those. At what point in your development process did one of you say to the other, hey, Winona Ryder? Or did that come from her agent or what? You know, our casting director, Carmen Cuba, it was her very first idea for any role in the show. She just, I, I just got, I just remember getting an email, hey, what about Winona Ryder? And so we were excited about it because you're looking for someone who you missed. Like, and, and Winona is someone who we really missed. I mean, she hasn't been around that much for the past 10 years. But then she would pop up in things. And then you remember how much you miss her. And we figured that if we missed her this much, I bet a lot of other people miss her. You know, and then we sent her the script and amazingly she responded to it and it, it just it clicked really really quickly with her and and now we cast her when we had just one script written so at the time and actually the Joyce character was a little different I mean she was much sort of this cursing smoking tough Long Island mom and then so <laughs> when we cast Winona we did alter the the character a little bit I think Joyce became a lot more interesting because Winona has a very you know sort of specific energy about her The obsession with this show is more intense than I think anything I have ever seen. What was your, oh my God, what have we done here moment? You know, the first thing that really messed me up was the, uh, there was a, Stephen King tweeted about it. (laughs) I mean, that, that, that to me was, because no one else had tweeted really at that point. And like, and he, you know, he obviously is one of our idols and was such a big inspiration for us and an influence on the show. And that, that sort of messed me up. I, you just don't think about it reaching those people. And yeah, it was, it was, it was insane. It was insane. I mean, it was, it I was mean hard even to starting Friday morning, you know, because the thing is released, you know, at midnight. People had finished and the show. There, so many people had already finished and were tweeting all these great things about it. And then it just kept... It's interesting how it sort of snowballs and it keeps growing and growing. And the way Netflix works, which is interesting, is that... They don't need to do a ton of marketing up front. They don't need to create a lot of awareness until it's on the show because when someone sees an advertisement for Stranger Things, they want them to be able to go on the service and watch it. There's no benefit to them 
to have a, a big opening weekend. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when people watch it as long as they watch it and enjoy it. So it was interesting to see that through word of mouth, it just started to grow more and more and more. And so even on, on Twitter, what starts as a, you know, a few tweets turns into more and more and more, and it just kept growing. And then, you know, and then you start seeing all this fan art the online, fan art. amazing fan art. And that's when we started realizing that, you know, and all this love for Barb, of course. They're like 25 best quotes from Barb. And it's literally all her lines. <laughs> I was like, because like, does she even have 25 lines? And then at the end, they're like, yep, those are all her lines. We've got to give a spoiler alert here because I don't know where this conversation is going to go, but it's going to go to Barb. People are obsessed with Barb. No love for Barb, except on Twitter. For us, it's easy to relate to her because high school was... I, it was terrible for us, and I know it was for a lot of people. You right, you either love it or hate it, and we hated it. And so I think there's a lot of people that feel like they were on the outside looking in, like Barb. So all I know is it's very easy for us to write the Barb character, and I think that you know Shannon Purser, who had never acted before, just did such a, a brilliant job realizing her, and again, without very many lines. 25 lines, and I think everyone feels like Either they knew this girl or they were this girl. I think the other reason people really connect to her, and I mean, yes, we've attributed to Shannon and how great of an actress she is, and, but also I just think no one casts anyone like her. That was something important to us and important to Carmen is that we're casting kids and teens. I mean, they, she looks like someone you might really go to school with. I think people are sick of, you know, when you look at what on network, the way that people look and behave. It's just not, it's not... Right, our it's teens, not real. Yeah, our teens have like acne, and it's like that was like great. I think that's helped the show. I think. I think so. Did you have a Hawkins, Indiana style childhood? We, when we we grew up in uh, Durham, North Carolina. So, and, and you know, we're, we actually you're shooting in in Atlanta, Georgia. So it looks very much like North Carolina, very much like the neighborhood we grew up in. We weren't monster hunting, but we were we were mostly going off and making movies with a very small group of nerdy friends. Not a lot of people wanted to be making movies with us. It's so funny because people like knock us for like the kids walking down the train tracks because it's so stand by me, obviously. But it's like, but we were walking down train tracks. Why can't we have the kids walk down train tracks? So yeah, it was, it was, very, it was very similar in a lot of ways to the town of Hawkins. Durham's a little bigger than I imagine um, Hawkins is though. Tell me about the performance that you got out of Millie Bobby Brown, who plays the little girl Eleven, where she has so few lines, but so much going on. And here's a young actress who hasn't had a lot of experience. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah. And for, uh, you know, and the thing about Millie and what makes her so incredible is most child actors, even the good ones, even we're talking like top 1% or top 0.5%, like the best of the best, what they're still not great at is listening because that's a very difficult thing to stay engaged in a scene when it's not your line because a lot of child actors are just waiting for the next line. And obviously that does not work with Eleven because this is a girl like on page who doesn't have, she has no lines. And so all of it has to come off of reaction. So to find someone that is able to convey that sense of, of character and really to be talking without talking is just, that's a hard enough thing for an adult actor to do, a trained adult actor, but for someone who's, you know, 11 years old is just, you know, Millie is really, it's almost freaky how good she is. And, you know, she's the child actor who, and I remember when Sean was directing, his mind was blown because she went up to him and was like, 
can I do another take? <laughs> and then you're like, okay, but the last you know, two were great. And she's like, no, no, let me do one more. But just also a reminder that she's British, which makes her talents even more freaky. And so, yeah, and then she does one more and she just takes it to another level. Like I was, I was treating her like she's a 41-year-old Shakespearean <laughs> well, actor. And also because she's very, which is something else that most child actors don't have, she's very aware of the camera. So someone like Winona or David, they know how to play to the camera. They know when it's in close-up. They know when it's not. But most child actors are just, they're doing the same thing take after take after take. They're not adjusting their performance to lens or they're not adjusting it to, to camera position. But Millie absolutely is able to do that, which is another reason why she's so incredible and I think why she's able to communicate uh, so much with, without saying very much. But at the same time, she's like a little girl too, you forget. Like she, you know, like the kiss, you know, with Finn, who plays Mike, you know, I mean, that was, that, there's a two-month buildup to that about how disgusting it's going to be, about how horrible, and why did you write this in? And <laughs> She's she, still 11. She's or still one 11. day she showed up on set and she's just covered head to toe in glitter and she's like I don't know where this glitter came from and it's like I'm not having this problem with any of my adult actors David Harbour's not coming in covered in glitter yeah what you're not a, you're on? not a you're not a vampire in twilight and what's going on Matt Duffer and Ross Duffer thank you so much for your time and congratulations on the huge success of Stranger Things oh, this was so, so fun yeah. thanks for talking thank you, you.